Delena, for their love for you, for their commitment to this church family and the way that they serve and encourage each one of us. As they begin their journey back down south for a few months here, we just pray uh, protection on them, that as they drive down, that they would have wonderful conversation, that you would be at work already preparing people along the journey that they would be able to talk to and minister to. And we know that as they're in Mexico and they plug back into the church down there, that that church will be blessed by them. So would you just wrap your arms around them, encourage them, help them to know how much we love them and that we'll miss them. And we just pray that you would bring them back to us safely. God, we're so thankful for them. Be with them in these, in these days and months. Amen. Thanks, guys. Now, they, all, they both know that they have to join the Bible study still over Zoom. So, I mean, it's, that was the only requirement that they could keep their membership. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's, not, that's not how we do things. Okay. All right, well, let me explain to you where we're at here this morning, because when Jordan asked um, kind of a theme for this morning as she was picking music out, I, I had a, a few verses and a few verses, and she was kind of like, well, that's strange. And it is strange, because last week we talked about what we call the Lord's Prayer, though it would better be described as the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, and, and prayer and then fasting, I was supposed to try and sneak in there as well. But it was just way too long, and I knew that was going to happen. So we're going to talk about fasting for just a little bit this morning, but then we're more going to talk about verses 19 to 24. Uh, this is of chapter 6, and, and laying up treasures in heaven. Um, and when I sat down on Tuesday morning, going through my notes and studying in preparation of how I was going to deal with this, uh, this is one of those moments where, where God just uh, changed my mind completely. As I thought I was going to talk about fasting much more, um, which is why I didn't add it to last week. But as I kind of hit the next section, and specifically a few different uh, theologians and commentators that I read about, I was really, really convicted because those verses are very familiar, but I think they're so familiar that sometimes we in our culture look right past them and, and can just almost ignore them. And so I really want to spend some time on that. So the past few weeks in chapter 6, we've been talking about our motivations, why we do the things that we do as Christians. And Jesus is focused on a couple of areas, our, our, our giving and uh, our prayer, and we're going to talk about fasting and then laying up treasures, which is kind of a callback to giving again. But the whole premise is why do we do the things that we do? Do we do them because that's normal spiritual practice? This is just how we were raised. This is just our traditions. This is just what we do. Or do we do these things because we want to see God receive honor and glory, and we want uh, our world to come to faith in Jesus? And I, I think we know it should be number two of that, and I hope most of the time it's number two. But often we can go to that first thing and we can just do things because, well, that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And so Jesus has been addressing our motivations and, and trying to deal with them in a unique way. And so we're going to continue that theme this morning. So let's read verses 16 to 24 of chapter 6. It says this. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting might be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others. Sorry, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And do not lay up treasures, sorry, do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither most, most, pardon me, neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye, of the, lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I tried to read that several times so that I wouldn't screw it up, but maybe you have this problem too, is you memorized some of these verses many years ago in different translations, and that's the way your brain wants to work, and then you read it in a different translation. I've been using the ESV for years, but still my mind goes back, so I apologize for that. The same implication uh, he gives here as he has with the others. When, when giving to the needy or when, when praying, he doesn't say, if you do this, what does he say? When you do this. So here he says the same thing, when you fast. I think this is interesting because how many of you is fasting a regular spiritual principle for? Maybe don't even raise your hands. That's okay. Just consider it. My guess, and I don't want to put anyone on the spot, is that that's not a normal part of our day-to-day spiritual lives. In fact, the stats bear out that very, very few evangelical Christians uh, have fasted more than once in their life, spiritually speaking. And so when we read a verse like this, and when when it seems like Jesus is anticipating there is going to be times of fasting, then perhaps we need to talk about this just a little bit more. So let me clarify, fasting is not simply the abstaining from food for a specific time. What is it? Abstaining for food for what? For spiritual focus. Right? So in the Old Testament, there were prescribed times of fasting uh, in the Hebrew law, but there were other times where they, they recognized the, a need that was present in their lives. And so rather than depending on kind of food to sustain them, they went for a time of prayer and fasting, recognizing that more than food, what they needed was the Lord to intervene in their lives. Now, I'm sure most of us have had that experience in a sense, where we have all the, the physical needs right in front of us. We can open the fridge or the cupboard and we can eat, but there's something weighing on us that is far more important than the physical, and that's maybe our own health. Maybe the health of someone that we love. Maybe someone has been diagnosed with illness, disease, and and we don't know how to deal with this, and we're trying to pray, and and, and we're calling out. Maybe it's your, your children have walked away from the Lord, and you're thinking nothing is more important that they would come back, and so maybe we're overwhelmed with times where we recognize our spiritual need far more than our physical. And that's kind of the idea of what fasting is meant to be. But interestingly enough, I think the reason many evangelicals don't fast is a verse that comes later in Matthew 9 where John's disciples come up and they say, uh, you know, the Pharisees uh, and us, we, we all fast regularly, but Jesus and, and his disciples, they don't. So why are they not fasting? And so it's a, kind of a complex answer, but, but basically the point of it is this. We can look at that and we can say there's a contradiction here. Or we can look at the scripture a little bit more broadly and see that there was a season of time where Jesus was saying basically this, is the Messiah, referring to himself, is here now. And we don't need to fast now, but there will be a time of fasting. 
when I go back to be with the Father. And when there are times when you don't, he's speaking directly to the disciples, you don't have me beside you to, to just answer your questions or, or help you in that process. After all, Jesus began his ministry by what? 40 days of fasting. You know, interesting Side note, 40 days is the longest time, according to um, physicians, that your body can endure without, before it starts to consume itself, which is a very bizarre thought. But Jesus takes it kind of all that way to the end. He fasts for that. And, and then the disciples, after the book of Acts, you start to see the apostles and disciples fasting more regularly. There are times of that. Sometimes it would be about a commissioning. God, what do you want us to do? Where do you want us to go? What church uh, should we go visit next? Or should I, should I go to this community to preach the gospel? Or that one? And, and there's often times of fasting in there. And so it's not that Jesus, lack, Jesus and his disciples' lack of fasting is a contradiction, but it's showing that there will be seasons and times where fasting is more necessary and sometimes where fasting isn't as necessary. The argument that I want to say is, is simply this. If you've not fasted before, I think it's a very good practice to get ourselves into. Not in the sense of following a schedule of every third week I take one day and I do this, but, but rather be so aware of your own spiritual need and the need of your family around you that there's moments where you go, rather than depend on food for, for what I think I need today, which we know we do need food, But we take that off for a short while and we focus on, God, would you give me direction and leadership? And would you be in the lives of my family and my friends and those who are hurting? And I think as we do that, we'll start to, well, I don't think, I know this. The more we are aware of our spiritual hunger and need, the more that hunger grows. And the more we see the need for Jesus in our day-to-day lives and the more we will mature. So Jesus' point here in fasting is the same as his point in the other ones, is is don't make it about you, make it about your heart with God. And so if you're fasting, if if you're like, you know, one of these moments of like you come sit down in front of uh, all your friends and family for Thanksgiving meal, but you're like, you know what, I'm so spiritual that I'm not going to eat today. But I'm going to sit here and I'm going to visit with everyone and I'm probably going to sigh a little bit every now and then when the gravy passes by and go, oh, I'm so spiritual. <laughs> Obvious exaggeration. But that's what was happening in the culture in that time when Jesus is speaking that, is people would, would disfigure their faces. They would literally go out of their way to make it look like they were fasting. And then they would sit in the street corners and go, look at me. I'm so godly. And Jesus goes, man, you're, you're missing it. That's not the heart of someone who loves God. The heart of someone who loves God is is a direct desire to please and honor him, and it doesn't matter if people see. Perhaps that's the biggest indication of our own spiritual growth is is if we're doing something without any awareness of, oh, were people watching? Now, that could be taken to the extreme, so don't take it that far. But thinking of it and going, well, when I give, when I pray, when I fast, when I do all these things, I just do it because I want to honor God. I just want him to receive glory from me. That's what Jesus is saying. So it's not about hiding it. It's, about, it's not about other people. And he says the same thing again. Is, um, in verse, at the end of verse 16, he says, if you fast so that others see you, all right, you've received your reward. Same way if you're at the Thanksgiving table, right? And you're in front of everyone going, look how religious I am or look how godly I am. 
you've received your reward. And what is that reward? Probably a lot of judgment, right? Everyone's going to be looking at you going, really? That's what you're going to do? Okay. Right? The slow clap kind of thing. Jesus' point, if we do things so that others see us, we'll get some kind of a reward, but it won't be. It won't be good. It won't be more than just the physical here and now. And I think Jesus' concern and our concern as Christians should be not the here and now nearly as much as it should be what? Eternity. Here and now is so short and so small. Our focus should constantly be on what is coming, on wanting to please God for these moments so that when we're with him for forever and eternity that we can know we did what was right and we did what was good, not for a sense of piety. Now, he moves on to a section, like I said, that's very familiar and, and obviously like I showed you is I know these verses in a different translation so that even when I'm reading them, I kind of trip over myself. But as I said, I came across a couple of commentators that talked about this in such a distinct way that I found myself just kind of slouched back in my chair going, have I even considered this? Or taken this seriously. And so I want to share with you kind of my journey on recognizing these verses, examining my own heart, and seeing where, um, where I've kind of ignored what Scripture is very clearly teaching us. And the reason I think we've done that is because the culture around us, uh, and when I say that I mean the Christian culture around us, has vastly just not talked about these things or talked about them in an overly contextualized way so that we don't have to uh, examine our own hearts. But that's kind of the point of what Jesus is, is doing here. But before I say this, I want to clarify something. Is The point is, the warning, I should say, is not only written to the rich so that they don't cling to their possessions. It's also a warning to the poor so that they would not seek after material possessions thinking that somehow that would be the answer to their hopes. It's kind of a funny thing, right, is, is those who don't have want, but often those who get to the end of their life who have had look back and say it wasn't what you maybe thought it would be. I think in our culture right now is material possessions probably are the greatest obstacle in our spiritual maturity because they're the greatest opportunity to become idolatry in our life. After all, you need to have a job. You need to make money so that you can afford to, you know, pay rent and, and eat and take care of your family and all of those things. And, and that's fine. But how much effort are we putting into that part of our life, dichotomizing our own spiritual life and going, you know, God, you're what's most important to me, but I only spend five minutes thinking about you throughout the day. We, we can say that God is most important to us, but what's really in our heart? How are we going to use the things that God has given to us? And the warning here is that all of those things are one day going to what? They'll be gone. They'll disappear. They'll fade. Leon Morris writes, The point of the uh, material possessions, uh, they appear substantial and lasting, but they are subject to decay in a variety of ways. And when you're tied tightly to the possession. That means you're going to endure loss. If you think of it a different way, is if you recognize that everything that you have is God's and, and, and it's for him anyway, then what happens if those things disappear? 
It doesn't matter. I think, again, this is a challenge that our culture has, is our identity is so placed in, in either our stuff or in maybe our job or our career that if we lose those things, we lose ourselves, and we go, I, I don't know who I am anymore. But if Christ is what's most important to you and you use everything that you have as ways to honor and, and minister for his glory, then it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter your job or your occupation. Your identity isn't tied up in those things. You simply go, okay, I no longer have this. Well, how else can I please and honor God today? I remember uh, one worship leader that I was talking to. He had bought his, uh, boughten, is that a word? He bought his uh, dream guitar. And he'd had this thing and he was playing it. And he was overcome one day with this, this sense that he was supposed to give it to this traveling worship leader that was in their church. And he was weighing through the pros and the cons of like, what should I do? And as he studied through Scripture that morning, and, uh, or as they in the morning service studied through Scripture, he, he came to the conclusion of, this guitar has become an idol in my life. It is more important than the reason that I actually even use it. And so he walked to that worship leader who was borrowing guitars, and he gave it to him, and, and he said, I don't have money to buy a new guitar, but I know that God wants me to do this for you, and so would you take this, and would you be blessed? And this guy said that for the next two odd years, he never once had to buy a guitar because someone always just showed up in church and said, here, you can use mine. And in that moment, and I'd see Jordan flinching, and I'm flinching as well, because like, is, is that right? We don't, do we want to hold our possessions that openly? That everything is God's in the first place, and so we're willing to just give it away at a moment's notice if that's what God has asked us. Maybe think of it in a different way. Is, is your home always open for anybody who might be in need? Or is it open only when it's convenient for us? There are so many implications uh, to these verses that as I was reading through and, and listening to what these other theologians were saying, it was so convicting because I think rather than evaluate regularly what I do, is I kind of once a year look at it and go, am I giving enough to charity? Am I giving enough to the church? Am I doing things as a good steward? Yep, good, check, move on. Oh, maybe you got a raise? Well, I better adjust that a little bit. But I think what Jesus' point here is rather it's a daily or a regular routine of evaluating our own hearts so that we're not laying up treasures on earth because they're going to get destroyed or, or taken away. We're going to lose them. I once had somebody tell me this is, what's the only resource that you can take to eternity with you? Relationship. Now, it's not quite right because you're not taking anybody with you. I think it would be more apt to say we'd be reunited with those. But that's really the only valuable resource that we should spend a significant portion of time and effort in because think of it if you're a parent. is if your child is greatly successful and, and, you know, it's got lots of money in the bank and has everything that they need, but is far away from Christ and is not going to go be with Jesus for eternity, would we consider that a success? Or flip it, if they love Jesus desperately, but they've been struggling and they don't, maybe don't even make enough money to go paycheck to paycheck, would we look at them as a failure? I hope we would look at that as that's the only thing that matters. Now, yes, we should work hard and we should teach and we've been given gifts and I think we should steward those things well either. So the point is not just, hey man, let's just give away everything. That's, that's not the point. The 
point is, do you steward well everything that God has given you? Money, time, gifts, talents, whatever it might be. Are are we investing in laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven when one day we'll be reunited with those that, that we loved and we cared for? Not because we saved them, only Jesus does that. But we've been called into a great commission to go and to share the gospel to disciple others, and that and that alone should be priority for us. Everything else in our life should fall underneath of that priority. I don't know if I could say that that's true in my own heart every day. Now let me rephrase that. I know that's not true in my heart every day. The sad reality is I love stuff. I think most of us do. We see something, we go, man, I, I really want that. And, and sometimes we'll maybe even justify it and go, I'll sell something so that I can buy that so I don't have more stuff. Is that what Jesus is after? And again, I'm not trying to say stuff is bad, okay? Don't hear that. That's not the point. The point is, am I constantly going to Christ and going, would this benefit or help your service? Can I use this for good and for your glory? Or is this just about me? Uh, I once heard a theologian say it this way. Is this for God's kingdom or is it for your kingdom? Are our possessions things so that we can elevate ourselves or so we can use them for the gospel of Christ? Now again, one of of my friends that was visiting recently shared a story. Um, uh, He played his professional hockey in in Germany for his whole career. And and one of the biggest supporters... Uh, of him and a couple of his friends who were Christians on the team, who happened to be one of the wealthiest businessmen in all of Germany. But he was a faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-serving person who no matter how much he gave, God went, I'm going to give you a little bit more. What an opportunity for him to bless and to fund. And, and, and I was told a story of they, they had this little fundraiser because they were, I don't remember, it was just an astronomical number, like $250,000 to their goal. And the guy walked in, wrote a check, folded it up, put it away, and left the event and didn't even stay. Because he didn't want to be known for that. He just wanted to be faithful with what God had given to him. How are we faithful with the things that God has given us? Leon Morris wrote this, and I found this deeply convicting. The place where we choose to store up what we value most shows what our values are deep down. Again, if we say Christ is most important, would someone walking into our home recognize that by the way that we live, what we have, how we use what we have? As I was reflecting on all of these things, uh, it was really easy to point the finger, and I pointed the finger directly at uh, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And I went, here is the problem that so many preachers have been teaching that, that the primary concern of the Christian should be so that God financially and, and uh, physically provides enough for you so that you are blessed here on this earth. If you haven't If you've been part of our church for any length of time, you know that that is not biblical, not true, and something that we really fight against. But as I was, you know, pointing the finger, what does the old adage go? Never point the finger, because what? Yeah, well, that happened this week. I was reading a commentary by Craig Keener, and he said this. 
Most Christians disagree with the prosperity movement and what preachers say over the radio and television. But the main difference between us and them is in practice is often that they provide a theological justification for their materialism while we do not. That hit me hard. I want to say that again. They provide a theological justification for their materialism while we do not. So for me to point and go, that's not the point of my life, and then to evaluate my own heart and go, how much time and effort am I spending on so I have enough in the bank account rather than focusing on discipleship, showing other people who Jesus is? It was at that point, I think that was on Thursday afternoon, I texted Shayla and I said, we probably should chat about something here. As I evaluated my own heart, that's where I came across, is this for God's kingdom or mine? I had to consider, how am I using what I'm using? Is this for God or is it for me? Jesus says, where your treasure is, where that's where your heart is as well. So I want to ask you this question, and this is sincerely, and this is not me pointing fingers at anybody by any means, but I want to ask you, where is your treasure? Our material culture has drastically influenced us. And again, the stuff isn't bad. The point of what Jesus is preaching about here is motivation. So I don't know what this looks like for each of us in our own lives and in our own family, but I do know this, is that I don't regularly ask God, what would you have me do with this? I just choose what I'm going to do with it. I think we all have a lot of growth that we can make in this sense, and I think one of the challenges is that because we live in such an affluent time in, in this place that we don't really talk about these things. When was the last time one of your Christian brothers or sisters, you know, sat down at your table for a meal and went, you know what, I'm really considering how much that I spend on myself and how much I give to charity or spend on ministry or, or spend time in discipleship? I don't think that's a very normal conversation. Yet I think that's what it means to follow Jesus, is when we have an abundance of something that rather than going, man, where can I invest this so that I can earn more? And again, I'm not saying investments are bad. My point is, are we going to Christ first, going, God, what would you have me do with this? What is a wise stewardship with what you have given me? How can I use this for your good and not my own? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He then takes a little bit of a detour in verses 22 and 23, and this may seem like a strange thing, but here's what Michael Wilkins says. He says, the eye, in the Hebrew kind of, thought, the eye is a lamp that reveals the quality of a person's inner life, and a healthy eye suggests loyal devotion to God, while a bad eye connotes moral corruption. As it says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? As I was studying that phrase, the conclusion I came to is simply this, is sometimes we don't even realize how blind we are. Sometimes we don't even see the obviousness of the, the desperate need standing right in front of our door. Are we filled with light or are our eyes open to see what God would have us see? Again, these are very, very difficult and sobering things for us to think about. 
but I think when we start to consider how wealthy we truly are in the grand scheme of things. And, and again, I understand some of us are going through very difficult financial situations, but that doesn't mean that Christ hasn't provided abundantly more for you than you could ask or imagine. It just means that what he's giving you is maybe stuff that you don't think you need right now. Or maybe he's not giving you what you think you need right now. But I think as we evaluate those things in our hearts more and more and we ask, am I living in submission to Christ with, with my stuff and with my talents and with my time? Or do I just accomplish all the things that I want to do and then go, okay, God, has this been honoring to you? Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve his example, God, and money. And I want us to flip ahead to Matthew uh, 19, because I want to read a story that you might be familiar with, and then I just want to show us one implication based on the last verse in that. So this is Matthew 19, starting at verse 16. It says this, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, hopefully you recognize that that's the wrong question to ask. And so Jesus takes him down a different avenue, and he says to them, oh, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and your father, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. I think that's true. All of these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was literally walking up to Jesus, acknowledging that Jesus was a great rabbi, maybe even the Messiah, saying, what do I got to do to go to heaven? That's been his whole life's goal. And Jesus gives him an answer, but he doesn't like the answer. Right? Jesus basically says, your money is an idol. His point is not you, all, we all need to sell everything that we own. The point is that we need to hold everything that we have with open hands. And Jesus knew very well that he was not going to follow him. And so he said, are you going to do this? Then come and follow me. And what's his response? He goes away sad. Why is he sad? I don't want to have to do what Jesus is calling me to do. I don't want to have to give up all the stuff that I've worked so hard for. Here's the question for us. Do we over-contextualize that verse so that somehow it doesn't apply to us? Or do we see the truth in that and realize what Jesus is saying to us here in Matthew 6 is that you can't serve God and money. They can't both be what's most important in your life. One will be most important. And so, friends, are we, are we willing to put everything that we have under submission to Christ and say, God, how would you have me use this? Now, again, just in case you're worried here, we're not taking up a second offering, right? The point is not, man, you've got to give more to our church. I don't even want to know who gives or how much you give. That's none of my business. What I want to know is that we take seriously what the Word of God says to us. And so my hope is that each one of us goes home here and we evaluate. And if you're married and have a family, sit down with your spouse or with your kids if they're old enough and have this conversation and go, in what ways are we being good stewards of what God has given us? And in what ways can we be more intentional with that? 
There's all kinds of practical ways in, in which we can do this. The question is, are we willing to do it all? Or maybe the question is, are we willing to see the issue? Craig Blomberg wrote this. This is a longer quote, but this was really, really good. He says this. Many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, as sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather it's the all-pervasive materialism that affects our affluent culture. We try so hard to create heaven on earth and to just throw in Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. Jesus proclaims that unless we are willing to serve him wholeheartedly in every area of our life, but particularly with our material resources, we cannot claim to be serving him at all. That's a tough one. It's so easy to point the finger. That theology is the problem. It's so easy to point at an issue or a thing rather than inwardly look at my own heart and go, God, am I stewarding well what you have given me? As we consider, as we move on into communion in just a moment here, again, the point is not that I'm trying to increase our our financial giving here at the church. If Phil was here, I would apologize, but he's not here this morning. That's not the point. The point is, each one of us, we should take seriously what God says and not assume that he's talking about somebody else. And I think that's the, the danger. There's always someone more well-off than you, right? And so it's easy to go, oh, Jesus is talking about that. Until you consider it this way. According to statisticians, about 5% of uh, people in the world control something like 95% of the wealth. So I went into the kind of evangelicalism world and did some stats, and, or did some, I found some stats to, to describe this. And what I found is in the United States specifically that more, there are more wealthy Christian, Christian business owners than not. And again, that doesn't mean that God isn't at work blessing them wonderfully. But it does mean that there's a responsibility that we should do well with what we have been given. Banff is a tough community in that we have some of the upper echelon, and we have some that, that are trying their very best to eat. And then everywhere in between. And so it can be easy for us to look across the street and see a bigger house or someone with more toys or whatever it might be and, and, and decontextualize this and go, it's not about me, God's talking about them. When Jesus' whole point with all of these things, giving, uh, prayer, fasting, our treasures, is he's talking to each one of his disciples going, where's your heart? So that's my challenge to you. We're going to read in a moment communion to remind us of the fact that Jesus is the one who walked into this earth, that he gave up his life on the cross for us, that he wasn't willing that any of us should die in our sins without opportunity at salvation and forgiveness. He gave everything he had, literally himself, so that we could live. If we want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, if we want to become more like Jesus, then we got to live as Jesus lived. Almost as if praying and asking that each day that God would direct and show us how we're to steward our time and our resources.
and our abilities. Let's focus more on the cross. Let's focus more on the kingdom. Let's focus on more that what really matters because at the end of your life, all the things that you have accumulated on this earth, they won't matter if your soul doesn't go to see Jesus. So let's put our focus on that. Let's pray. God, these are very challenging words. But I fear that sometimes we just read right over them, assuming that it's talking about somebody else. God, would you give me the courage and would you give each one of us the courage to evaluate our own hearts that we would become better stewards of what you have given to us? Reminding us that it's all yours to begin with anyway. So would we hold with open hands all the things that we have? And would we consider how am I serving Christ and how am I trying to make disciples? Would that become the primary concern of our lives? Help us to not be caught by the materialism that exists in our age. It is all around us. Would we not succumb to that kind of thinking? Would we constantly evaluate and look and say, the things that I want are the things that are eternal? And may we run after those. As we shift into communion here now, God, would you work in our hearts for these few moments? Would we consider our motivations behind everything that we do? And would we learn from Jesus' motivations? that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. If you'd like to follow along, you can just flip ahead a little while to 1 Corinthians. And we're just going to read together chapter 11, starting at verse 23. And if I can just get uh, Randy and somebody else to come help, because I forgot to ask at the beginning, to come up and, and, and we'll just read these verses together, and then we'll pass out communion together. And, and if you, if this is unfamiliar to you, if communion's kind of a, a weird or a new thing to you, um, this is just representative stuff. Um, these elements, there's, there's a cracker and there's a little grape juice, and we're going to pass those out to you, and we're going to pray for them, and we're going to eat, and we're going to drink them together at the same time as a reminder of the very last supper where Jesus said what I'm about to read for us. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to do this with us. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then, then this really doesn't have a lot of significance to you. And, and so we would just ask that you would let it pass by. There's no judgment or condemnation for that. Our concern is your soul. And so if you'd like to come and talk to us about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What, what, is, what does it mean to give my life to him? There is not a greater conversation I would love to have with you than that. This is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to pass out the bread. And as we just sit quietly, I just want us to evaluate our own hearts in the context of what we've talked about today is what motivates me to do the things that I do. I just want you to leave that with with God and allow him to show to you in your heart how he would have you live. Let's pray. God, as we pass out what represents your body broken for us now, we are beyond thankful and grateful. There's not even words to describe how desperately we needed you to come and be our substitute. Thank you that Jesus was willing to go to the cross sacrifice his life in place of ours. As we consider these things, would you help us evaluate our hearts and consider why do I do the things that I do? God, be with us in these moments. Give us the courage to be willing to ask these hard questions. Amen. This represents Christ's body, broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. God, as we pass the cup around next, as we're reminded that it represents Jesus' blood spilled for us and that His blood was the only atoning sacrifice that would forgive our sins. God, we acknowledge and we recognize that there is 
nothing that we could do to earn your love and your forgiveness, but that you offered it freely to us. And would that truth change how we live? Would we not do good works to be seen by others, but would we want to honor and bring glory to you by how we live out of the depth of our gratitude and our love for you? We want to be people that represent your name well to a very broken and very hurt world where we believe the only answer is Jesus. Would we focus on that? Amen. represents Christ's blood spilled for us. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we go from this place to the, to the next things that you have called us, would we recognize and realize you are at work in every part of our life? Would we actively seek ways in which we can enter into conversation with people seeking to show them who you are? Would we desire to follow you at all cost? Remind us this week what is most important and help us to hold everything we have with open hands, listening to you and how you would have us use it. As we go from this place, as we go on, we are so thankful that we get to be part of your family. Keep this in our memory every day. Amen.
Thank you for joining us this morning. Duck. Um, if you'd like to join us for coffee and snacks, please do. If you're visiting and you have any questions, or if you've just moved to the valley and you'd like to connect with us, we would love to connect with you. Uh, have, oh, somebody say something? No, have a good week. Thank you.